Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the fifth, uh, the fifth part of the series of, of looking at the Christian story. And today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and, and as we jump into it, let me just continue to keep our visual in front of you. This is uh, David Arms' God story, which is a painting about the arc, uh, overarching, overarching narrative of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And, and as I said a couple weeks ago, we're going to be in that third panel uh, from two weeks ago all the way to the last sermon in this series at the end of this year. And so um, that's where we're headed to remind you why we're doing this. First of all, it's so that we can understand our Bibles. During our discipleship series, we said our Bibles are critical to our discipleship, our ability to even know and follow after the God of the universe. Uh, also, it helps us develop our Christian worldview. Like when we use crazy terms like kingdom, uh, what does that mean? Well, today we're going to talk about king, uh, God being the king. And so hopefully we'll unpack a little bit of that for you. Uh, and then also a major component of our discipleship and following after Christ is knowing uh, how we fit into God's story. And so as we uh, jump into it today, if you would, just uh, join me in one more word of prayer here. Well, Father, um, yeah, we, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word. We need to know that, that you are still the king, <laughs> that you are still on the throne, even as it may not feel as such. And so, Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts and convince our hearts of that? Because only you can really do that. And would you speak clearly through me? Would you protect my words from creating any other form of stumbling apart from the cross of Jesus Christ? And Lord, we pray that you will change us as we hear a little bit more of this beautiful story that you are writing of redemption. So we love you. Thanks for being with us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we kind of think through these panels and where we've been, uh, so really what this third panel is doing is it's, it's really an outline uh, showing us the nature of this covenant relationship between God and his people. And so I'm going to reframe it a little bit this morning and say, hey, think about God's relationship with his people as a marriage. Okay? So here's what we've seen so far. We've seen the defining moment of this marriage with the resurrection, which really undid long-standing conflict that arose from their first fight, right? The fall, right? That was, it was a pretty big fight. Um, we talked about how they first met, this idea of creation. Uh, we've talked about how the hero saved the heroine from certain situations. Think of uh, him delivering God's people from Egypt. We even heard the exchanging of vows with the law that Dave talked about last week. And so really where we're going to be from now until Jesus really shows up on the scene and really beyond is how they got along in marriage. How'd they get along, right, in this marriage? And we're going to do so at least this morning by looking through the lens of, of the idea of a king and kingdom. You hear that a lot. Even Jesus preaches on the idea of kingdom a good bit in the New Testament. But, but that seems weird to us, doesn't it? I mean, we use all this kingdom language as modern Americans or living in America, where we don't have a king, uh, we don't really get it sometimes, do we? I mean, what do you think of when you think of a king? Uh, so uh, in America, uh, our last king was King George III. And that's probably not the best you know, idea of a good king, because that king was a tyrant, right? 
Okay, well, maybe the second closest thing we can think of is Queen Elizabeth or the royalty uh, in uh, Great Britain. And so, uh, but, but for some of us, we may go, but, but what do they do? Like, I mean, we know they plan really awesome weddings, but, but beyond that, what exactly do they do? Now, a few sermons ago, we talked about some of the stuff that they do, but, but let's be honest. It's, it's a different kind of king than probably what we're talking about here or a queen. Uh, because uh, that's what we call a constitutional monarch, where uh, there's not a lot of formal power. But as we jump into this story, into the nation of Israel, they actually had no questions at all what the Bible means when it talks about God being king. And it's said over and over and over again in Scripture. For instance, Psalm 103, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens as, and His kingdom rules over all. So they would know that, that this God has absolute authority over every, over every molecule that has ever been created, that ever exists. He's the king over all of that. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, so uh, one of the greatest emperors of his time, uh, a tyrannical emperor, after God had humbled him and restored him, this is what he would say, and, and most would qualify him as an unbeliever, if you will. His understanding of God is, in his kingship is he does according to his will, among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so they kind of got this idea of God being king. And really, when you talk about a king, you're talking about the nature of their sovereignty, that they're sovereign overall. Now, again, sovereignty is another word that we don't use a whole lot, do we? I mean, do you all use sovereignty a good bit around your house? Um, so a number of years ago, uh, one of my professors, a, a guy named Wayne Grudem, he assigned us a pa- or, uh, an assignment to go home and, and really unpack this idea of the communicable attributes of God. Okay, Anthony, this isn't helping me clarify. What's a communicable thing? So think communicable disease, right? We know what that is right now in a pandemic. Uh, a communicable disease is something that can be communicated or passed from one person to another. And so God's communicable attributes are the attributes of God that he shares with his image bearers, us, right? Now, not to the same degree that God has it, but, but one of his attributes that we share somewhat with him is sovereignty. Sovereignty essentially just means absolute authority. And so when Dr. Grudem said, go home and write down all the ways you display these attributes of God, and one of them was sovereignty, I'm like, what? I don't know. I don't get it. And so I sat there uh, for a very long time and said, how am I sovereign over something? And I got in my car and I went, here's one area I'm sovereign. I have absolute authority right now as to where I'm going to drive my car, right? I can can change the paint on the outside of my car if I want. Um, I can think of my house. So a number of years ago, we ripped a wall out of my house and we redid uh, the living area. And I have sovereignty over the house. Now you may say, no, the bank does because you owe them or you have to get permits to do what you want. But Cooperate with the author's intent right here, okay? I am sovereign over my home. And so I had authority to rip out its walls and to paint color on the walls. And one of the effects of my sovereignty over that room is it begins to take on my character qualities. Because you know what we did? We painted the walls the color we wanted it to. We decorated. We put the chairs we wanted and the pictures on the walls that we wanted so that through our sovereignty, our character would be reflected in that place. And so, kids, you have toys, you're sovereign over your toys. Many of you have houses, you're sovereign over your houses. We actually get sovereignty more than we think. And so the same goes in the Bible. When you see this idea of 
king, God being king, he has absolute authority over every part of his creation. And as his reign is realized in those parts of creation, it takes on his character. Justice, love, mercy, holiness. So when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he said, Lord, you have absolute authority. May it take on your character qualities. As you see Jesus talk about uh, the different parables of the kingdom, he's talking about God's rightful authority over creation and it taking on those character qualities. So guess what? You, right now, are under God's kingdom authority. Whether or not you believe in God or not, you are still under his rule. Just like if you lived in a kingdom that was ruled by a king, you may not like the king, you may not believe the king existed, but you're still in his kingdom. And you are still a part of his good rule. The question is, is are we, um, are we submitting to his rule or are we rebels against it? So here's the problem, and here's the first bullet point we're going to look at today. The problem is what we make of ourselves. So we're going to catch up a little bit in this story. So last week we talked about Moses and we talked about the covenant made with him. And then since Moses, there was Joshua who led his people into the promised land and almost accomplished the job God assigned to his people. And then you have this group of, uh, you know, well, of the Israelites in the book of Judges. Now, if you were here, we went through a whole sermon series on the book of Judges, but the book of Judges is a hard book. Because essentially, it was God's people constantly turning away from God to whatever it was they wanted to follow and and being oppressed by the very thing that they submitted their lives to that weren't God and them calling out to God and saying, save us, and God saves them through judges and then they do it again and they just go through this cycle like this and it's over time this downward trend and at the end, the book of Judges ends with a thud. Because at that point in the story, they look more like the world around them than they do a follower of God. And this is the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, does that mean that God all of a sudden lost control and he he fell off the throne and he's no longer king? No. It's saying in the hearts of God's people, they weren't following the true king. In fact, they had placed themselves on the throne as little kings and queens doing what was right in their own eyes. And so when we talk about this idea of sin that we uh, discussed back uh, when we talked about Genesis 3 in the fall, we talked about sin being the de-godding of God. And so this is kind of another camera angle of what sin is. Sin is trying to unseat the rightful king. Even though we live in his kingdom and under his right rule and reign, our heart's disposition is to be rebels, is to rebel against him. And so, friends, when we run to other gods for our comfort, protection, hope, when we avoid him, when we blame shift, when we cheat, when we bully, when we're consumed by anger, when we sow division or discord, when we slander each other or our presidents or our senators or our governors, when we turn a blind eye to the oppressed, do you know what they are? Those are one of a million little acts of revolution. Little coup attempts, rebellions to put ourselves on the throne after trying to thrust him out however we can. So friends, sin is not simply a mistake or an oops. It's rebellion, punishable by death. Well, God, in this moment of recognizing that that there is no king, right? everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes, he begins to continue to pull this thread of redemption by eventually putting a man on the throne, David, who was a man after God's own heart, 
uh, and, and, and making him king. And so as we see the unpacking of, of David's story, uh, what we need to recognize is this covenant that we're actually going to read today from 2 Samuel 7 is almost at the top of this layer cake of the covenants that we said two weeks ago uh, was really uh, the backbone of Scripture and our understanding of the new covenant that is to come with the person of Jesus Christ. And so last week we talked about Moses and the covenant made with him, with God's people, and today we're going to talk about David. We're going to talk about David. And so God continues to move his story of redemption forward through the lens of kingdom. All right, so here's the next bullet point. We're going to look at God's work. What's fully on display in these first verses of 2 Samuel 7 is God's work. And the first thing we see is that God, uh, or who makes who great? All right, ask yourself that question. Who is making whom great? I don't even know if I said that right, but who's making who great in this part of the passage? So if you have your Bibles, 2 Samuel 7, let's start in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, and this is, this is God talking to Nathan the prophet. He said, say this to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, and that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. All right, so the first thing we need to ask here is who is making who great? David was a shepherd and God has elevated him to the part of a king. Was that due to some fancy platforming and a lot of Twitter followers and things like that of David, is that how he got on the throne to be the king of Israel? No. God said, I did it. I took you from the fields. I went before you and defeated your enemies. I put you here. And so the first thing we need to understand about God's work is that he is the one who makes anyone great. We never make our own names great. We never make another person's name great. And he makes their names great, and here's the second thing we want to see, to accomplish his work. Now here's the context. At the very beginning of this passage, David's saying, you know what, I'm going to go build a real house for God. God and the Ark of the Covenant has been living in a tent for all these years, so I need to make him a, a great house because he's a great God. And that's not a bad thing, right? But this was God's response. Pick back up with me in verse 11. In the middle of the verse... God says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that offspring word again that we saw at the beginning in Genesis 3. I'll raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, here's the great irony. David comes into this passage saying, I'm going to make you a house, God. I'm going to make it. It's going to be nice. It's going to be really nice. And God basically says, actually, I'm going to do the house building. I'm not just going to build you a big palace. I'm going to build your house as it pertains to your offspring, which are your children, which will be on this throne. And that is my work and continued work. Do you remember the word offspring all the way back in Genesis 3.15? Do you remember in Abraham, he talks about offspring? And here he is again saying, the offspring thing is still in effect, and I'm going to build a house for you far bigger than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. And in part, he's looking at David and saying, David, I love you. It is my joy to use you, but I don't need you. 
I don't need you to accomplish my work. I will do it, whether you're here or not. And that is really good news. Do you know why that's good news? Because in a couple chapters, in chapter 11, you know what David does? David, I don't know if he was scared to go to war, if the Hittites were really powerful that year, but, but in a time where the kings usually go to war, guess what he did? He chose flight, right? He stayed at home. He sat on his rooftop. He checked out the girl down the street. He had an affair with her. She got pregnant and he murdered her husband to cover up his sin. Really glad God's plan didn't depend on him. You know what he did in chapter 24 of this book? Maybe he decided, well, okay, that was flight. Now I need to move to fight. I'm going to take some matters into my own hands. I'm going to take a consent or a census. And what a census is, is it's a king's way of saying, how many, how many swords do we have? How strong are we so I can now go to war? And it's a confusing passage, I'll admit. But, but David, it's very clear in that passage, was out of bounds. And he was uh, doing something that wasn't pleasing to God. So two weeks ago, my family was sitting around and, and they were laughing at Dad's uh, predisposition to his response to fear. Uh, what do we do when we're usually facing fear? It's one of two things, right? Fight or flight, right? We understand that concept. Uh, when I am often faced with a fearful situation, uh, I default, now I've done both and we all do both, but I default to fight. I am a fighter. Uh, oftentimes this comes out when dogs are running after me. Uh, like when I go running, by the way, those invisible fences in y'all's front yard are just terrifying for runners. You know, we're running by and we're like, there's a dog. He's running. He's not stopping. His teeth are out. And then usually I, I face them with my fist back and the owner's looking at me in the yard like he's going to kill my dog. And the dog stops, right? Uh, and, you know, probably part of the reason I, I don't fight is because 40-year-old giraffes can't run very fast. Flight is not a great option. But, but there was another opportunity to demonstrate this a couple of years ago. I was walking Duke, uh, my terrifying 21-pound mini golden doodle, uh, through our neighborhood there in Ardsley. And, and uh, my neighbor had one of those ridiculous release leashes, uh, and she must have had her finger on the button with her 5,000-pound black lab, and, and the lab just comes running after and attacks my dog. I mean, just <laughs> right on its back legs. And, and in that moment, I had this thing where I picked Duke up, and I just start kicking and punching this dog to get him off of him. Now, uh, let me just clarify, no dogs were really hurt in the filming of this illustration. Uh, so just, just know that. Duke cleared a little bit visit to the vet, and it was fine. We made up with our neighbors and, and what have you. But, but I fought. And here's what I didn't recognize I was doing to poor Duke. He, um, you know, we had the little neck collar at the time, and when I said I picked them up, that's not good for dogs. Um, we now have the harness, dog lovers. Okay, we know that wasn't the best thing. But, but anyway, he's like, <coughs> you know, recovering from this thing. Why on earth would you tell us that story, Anthony? Um, here's what happens. When we forget that God makes his name great and that God is at work accomplishing his task despite what we see, we respond solely out of fear. And we will do one of two things. We will fight. And we fight to protect our own little kingdoms. Ourselves, our families, our country, our political parties. And we may say, but Anthony, I am fighting the big dog attacking the little dog. But here's what happens when we respond that way out of fear is we don't realize what we're doing with collateral damage with those around us. Like my little dog, right? We're just instinctively swinging. 
or we go to flight. We're afraid we just stick our heads in the sand. And friends, that is not ever what we see in Scripture. When we respond to life out of sheer fear, doubting that God is continuing to do His work, we are going to devolve into the isms, fraction, or faction, self-righteousness, and pride that we see so prevalently today. I think one of the most beautiful pictures we see of this working its way out positively when faced with a fearful situation is Jesus in Gethsemane. Here come the people to arrest him. He knows the horror of what is to come. He knows the darkness behind what's to come and bearing the rebellion of every single person. And what happens? He doesn't stick his head in the sand. He doesn't run away. In fact, when he's facing his accusers, he actually corrects them. But he also doesn't act like Peter who just pulls out a sword and starts hacking, right? He trusts the faithfulness of his God and continues to faithfully follow him, trusting that the Lord will accomplish his task. We're going to talk about some specifics at the end of this of what that might look like. But finally, let's look at the third bullet point of God's rule. God's rule. Because God's work is there to finally establish his rule, which will bring about redemption. Pick back up with me, 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 to 16. God says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house shall be your kingdom, or sorry, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's what's happened. This is the first time I'm going to use this. This is a paradigm that will be really important as we continue to think through the Old Testament. But it's the idea of shadows and forms, right? So when we used to live in St. Louis, my kids were of the age where we would do shadows, right? Like hand puppets and whatnot at night. There would be a light, and I would like hold my fist a certain way, and a palm tree would show up on the, on the ceiling. It wasn't a palm tree. I don't even know what it was. But, but anyway, uh, the point is is there are the shadows that we see that we're not quite sure what's making it and that there's the form behind it. Here's what's happening here with this promise to David. Uh, David's getting ready to, and he's actually living out uh, this shadow. In fact, David himself is a shadow of a form that is to come that he can't quite see yet or understand. You see this thing where he says, hey, I'm going to establish your kingdom. And he said, forever. But he said, I'm going to discipline your offspring as they come forth. And, and so you'll see Solomon, he was a mess by the end, right? There was discipline that happens there. You see Israel and the kings that follow, they were a mess. And there was discipline that comes. But there is this term forever there that we can't pass by quickly. Because you know what this idea of forever is doing? It's pointing us to the actual form that's casting this shadow backwards to the Old Testament. So there's one of two ways that, that this kingdom and this throne could be established forever. The first is there's a Davidic Davidic heir for every generation without end uh, where there is a Davidic king on the throne. But here's a second way it can happen, and, and this is the way I believe we'll see as we wrestle through the rest of Scripture that it takes place, that one day there is an heir to the Davidic line that actually lives forever. Isaiah 9. So this was given in about 1000 B.C. That's when this promise is given. Isaiah 9, this is about 200 years later. Isaiah says, right, Q, Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born, to us, to unto us a son is given, 
And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, right? No human's going to fit that category. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. All right, he's got to be talking about something other than Solomon right now, right? So fast forward to Matthew 1. And this is where we usually tune out of our Bibles. We skip this to get to the Christmas part, right? But there's a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Here we go. Son of David. Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then you skip down a lot of names. And at the end, it tells us all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is God with us. Jesus is the form. Despite works of billions of rebels to undo God's reign, God works to establish his rule for eternity, offering salvation and change to any who trust in Christ alone in the person and work of him, the true king, Jesus Christ. You know what that makes us? if we have bowed our knee to the king, if we're here and we say we're a part of this church, we have placed our faith in Jesus, we've said, he's my king. We've said, I am an ambassador in this world, right, that has not yet fully realized his reign, and we as a church are that embassy. An embassy is basically a group who lives for one country while living in another. And so, let me just ask this as the last question. Give me a few more minutes as we uh, wrap up here. What does it look like for us this week to live under the reign of this king as an embassy and as ambassadors of him? I think the first is what Psalm 146 says. Put not your trust in princes. They're going to die, and their plans will die with them. We need to remember that this week. Here's a second thing, and I would really just, this comes out of 1 Peter. Peter's telling the church, this is how you live as citizens in a foreign land. He said, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Here's our takeaways. Living... As citizens of God in this world, this week, means, verse 16, avoid covering up evil. Avoid covering up evil. Avoid covering up what is clear from Scripture. Here's some things that are clear from Scripture. What's evil? Sexual immorality, both the ones that we tend to pick on and the ones that we tend to coddle and protect. Strife, jealousy, anger, divisions, greed, murder, oppression of the orphans, widows, immigrants, and any ethnicity. We must not cover any of those things up. And if we really believe that, guess what? Each political platform fails miserably somewhere along that line. And so do you, and so do I. Here's what verse 15 says. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put people to silence. All right, so we kind of get the, let's not cover up evil. So we put on our culture police and we, uh, hat and we go out and we say, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And, and we say it on social media and we spend two to ten hours 
putting ammunition in our guns to blow everybody away who just might be hiding some sort of evil, but we forget to actually do good. You know how much more effective our Christian witness would be if we would take those two to ten hours that we spend reading the news or posting about things to go meet our neighbors, to go say, how can I bear your burdens, for taking in someone who needs a place to live, for serving it grow in an immigrant population who is just desperate for people to love on them. How about this one? Honor everyone. Now that Greek word for everyone is very specific. Everyone in the Greek means everyone. Everyone. Even your enemy. Honor them. Romans 12 says, outdo one another in honoring one another. That means we should be in a competition on social media to outdo the person before us in honoring the person we're posting on their wall. Love the brotherhood. Love each other. Love the church. Because by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then finally, honor the emperor. You know what the closest thing to an emperor we have is? President. You want me to honor Trump? Yes. God's word says honor Biden if he gets elected? Yes. Do you know who was reigning as the emperor when Peter wrote this? Nero. He set his city on fire and blamed it on the Christians. He killed half of his family because he was a megalomaniac. Peter says honor him. I don't know exactly what that means, but may we battle to figure out what that looks like. Some believe that they cannot worship with someone who votes for a certain candidate or for someone who falls along a different party line. Some have made extreme statements all over the church, right, here and outside of it, that certain people should be disciplined for following a certain political path. But I'm just going to be clear, we don't espouse that here. Politics is a human, man-made system led by rebellious sinners and by nature will have some areas of beauty and some areas of brokenness. And so we're going to refuse outright to divide along those lines. Now, if you are convinced of that, Romans 14 says this is an opinion-level issue and you need to honor your own conscience. But what that may mean, and I say this as lovingly as I possibly can, this may not be your church. If you believe you can't worship with somebody on the other side of the aisle, this is probably not your church. Because we don't want you to violate your conscience. We don't want to frustrate you in your discipleship. There are a lot of good churches who would probably fall in line of what you believe there. And at worst, by saying you might cause division. And we don't want to foster that either. Here's what I I, I want to say, and and we do it in fits and starts, and I don't do it perfectly, and and no one here does, but, but we want to be for Jesus alone. For the King whose reign is forever, who is doing His work despite our best efforts to undo them, and will complete His task of redemption. David Platt said in a sermon, Uh, that I've borrowed some of these thoughts from. Go back to McLean Bible Church and, and feel free to watch it from this last week, Exalting Christ in an Election. But he says this, 39 U.S. presidents have lived, led, and died, and their bodies are still in the grave along with their plans. But not our king. 
He was crucified for every work of rebellion that we have taken out against him. And he lives and reigns today through the power of the resurrection, and he continues to write the story of consummation that will one day make all things new. Follow that king. Let me close this in prayer. Oh God, even as I wrote this this week, you revealed to me a hundred ways that I am not following this king. Where I give myself over to fear, where I hide, where I inappropriately fight, where I fail to trust you are who you are and you will do what you say you will do. Oh God, break me of that and break us of that. God, may we be a church that moves to repent from the things that we have put our trust in, from the princes, and sometimes the prince and princess that is ourselves, that we put on the throne when we do what is right in our own eyes. Break us of that. Make us be a people who are heralds of your good and worthy rule. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.